Chapter Five of The Life and Adventure of James P. Beckworth by Thomas D. Bonner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Ullman. Chapter Five: Sufferings on the Platte. Arrive at the Rocky Mountains. Fall out with General Ashley. Horses again stolen by the Crow Indians. Sickness of our general. Rescue of the general from a wounded buffalo. Remarkable rescue of the general from the Green River Suck. Not finding any game for a number of days, we again felt alarmed for our safety. The snow was deep on the ground, and our poor horses could obtain no food but the boughs and bark of the cottonwood trees. Still we pushed forward, seeking to advance as far as possible in order to open a trade with the Indians and occupy ourselves in trapping during the finish of the season. We were again put upon reduced rations, one pint of beans per day being the allowance to a mess of four men, with other articles in proportion. Here I had a serious difficulty with our general, which arose in the following manner. The general desired me to shoe his horse, which I cheerfully proceeded to do. I had finished setting three shoes, and had yet one nail to drive in the fourth. When about to drive the last nail, the horse, which had been very restless during the whole time, withdrew his foot from me. My patience became exhausted. I applied the hammer several times to his belly, which is the usual punishment inflicted by blacksmiths upon unruly horses. The general, who was standing near, flew into a violent rage, and poured his curses thick and fast upon me. Feeling hurt at such language, from the lips of a man whom I had treated like my own brother, I retorted, reminding him of the many obligations he owed me. I told him that his language to me was harsh and unmerited, and that I had thus far served him faithfully, and that I had done for him what no other man would do, periling my life for him on several occasions, that I had been successful in killing game when his men were in a state of starvation and warming at the recapitulation, I added, There is one more nail to drive, General, to finish shoeing that horse, which you may drive for yourself or let go undriven, for I will see you dead before I will lift another finger to serve you. But little more was said on either side at that time. The next morning the General gave orders to pack up and move on. He showed me a worn-out horse, which he ordered me to pack and drive along. I very well knew that the horse could not travel far, even without a pack. Still influenced by the horse language the general had addressed to me on the previous day, I said, General, I will pack the horse, but I wish you to understand that, whenever he gives out, there I shall leave him horse and pack. Obey my orders and let me have none of your insolence, sir, said the general. I was satisfied this was imposed upon me for punishment. I, however, packed the horse with two pigs of lead and sundry small articles and drove him along in the rear, the others having started a considerable time previous. The poor animal struggled on for about a mile and then fell groaning under his burden. I unpacked him, assisted him to rise, and repacking him, drove him on again in the trail that the others had left in the snow. 
Proceeding half a mile further, he fell again. I went through the same ceremony as before. He advanced a few yards, fell a third time. Feeling mad at the general for imposing such a task upon me, my hands tingling with cold through handling the snowy packed ropes, I seized my hammer from the pack and striking with all my power, it penetrated the poor animal's skull. There, said I, take that. I only wish you were General Ashley. You do, do you? said a voice from the bushes on the side of the trail. I well knew the voice. It was the general himself, and another volley of curses descended uninterruptedly upon my head. I was not the man to flinch. What I said I meant, I explained, and it makes no odds whether you heard it or not. You are an infernal scoundrel, and I'll shoot you. And suiting the action to the word, he cocked his piece and leveled it. I cocked my rifle and presented it also, and then we stood at bay, looking each other direct in the eyes. General, I at length said, you have addressed language to me which I allow no man to use unless you retract that last epitaph, you and I must surely die. He finally said, I will acknowledge that it was language which never should be used to a man, but when I am angry, I am apt to speak hastily. But he added, I will make you suffer for this. Not in your service, General, I replied. You can take your horse now and do what you please with him. I am going to return to St. Louis. Your general almost smiled at the idea. You will play going back to St. Louis, he said, when in truth you were afraid of being killed by the Indians through being left too far behind with that old horse. I left general, horse, and pack and started on to overtake the advanced party in order to get my saddlebags before leaving them. Approaching the party, I advanced to Fitzpatrick, in whose possession they were, and addressed him. Hold up, Fitzpatrick. Give me my saddlebags. I am going to leave you and return to St. Louis. What? exclaimed he. Have you had more words with the general? Yes, I replied. Words that will never be forgiven. By me, at least, in this life. I am bound to return. Well, said he. Wait till we had camp, a few hundred yards ahead. Your things are in the pack. When we stop, you can get them. I accompanied them till they encamped. Then, taking my goods from the pack, I was getting ready to return when the general came up. Seeing me about to carry my threat into execution, he addressed me. Jim, you have ammunition belonging to me. You cannot take that with you. Luckily, I had plenty of my own, so I delivered up all in my possession belonging to him. Sir, I said, as fortune has favored me with plenty, I deliver up yours. But if I had had none of my own, I would have retained a portion of yours, or died in the attempt. And it seems to me that you must have a very small soul to see a man turned adrift without anything to protect him against hostile savages or procure him necessary food in traversing this wild wilderness. He then said no more to me, but called Fitzpatrick and requested him to dissuade me from leaving. 
Fitzpatrick came and exerted all his eloquence to deter me from going, telling me of the great distance before me, the danger I ran when alone of being killed by Indians, representing the almost certain fact that I must perish from starvation. He reminded me that it was now March and that the snows were already melting, that spring with all its beauties would soon be ushered in and I should lose the sublime scenery of the Rocky Mountains. But my mind was bent upon going. All my former love for the man was forfeited, and I felt I could never endure his presence again. But Patrick's mission having failed, the general sent a French boy to intercede toward whom I felt great attachment. He was named Baptiste La Guanice, and was about seventeen years of age. I had many times protected this lad from the abuse of his countrymen, and had fought several battles on his account, for which reason he naturally fled to me for protection, and had grown to regard me in the light of a father. When this boy saw that I was in earnest about leaving, fearing that all attempts at persuasion would be useless, he hung his nether lip and appeared perfectly disconsolate. The general, calling this lad to him, desired him to come to me and persuade me from the notion of leaving. He pledged his word to Baptiste that he would say no more to displease me, and he would spare me no effort to accommodate me and offered me free use of his horses, assigning as a reason for this concession that he was unwilling for word to reach the States that he had suffered a man to perish in the wilderness through a private difficulty in the camp. At this moment, La Pointe presented himself, manifesting by his appearance that he had something of importance to communicate. General, he said, more than half the men are determined to leave with Beckworth. They are now taking ammunition from the sacks and hiding it about. What is to be done? I will do the best I can. Then, turning to the lad, he said, I took Jim's ammunition, thinking to deter him from going. Had he insisted upon going, I should have furnished him with plenty. Go now, he added, and tell him I want him to stay. But if he insists upon going, to take whatever he wants. Baptiste left the group which surrounded the general and made his way to me, with his head inclined. Mon frere, said the lad, addressing me as I sat. The general talked much good. He want you stay. I tell him you no stay, dat you en colère. I tell him if mon frere go, by gar I go too. He says you go talk to Jim and get him to stay. I tell you vat I think. You stay little longer, and if the general talk you bad one time more, then we go by gar. You take one good horse me take one good horse too we carry our planket we take some viads and some poudre then we leave we go now we take nothing then we die i knew that the boy gave good advice and foregoing my former resolve i concluded to remain my decision was quickly communicated to the whole camp and the hidden parcels of ammunition were restored to their proper places the storm in the camp ceased and all were ready to proceed i have heard scores of emigrants when stopping with me in my hermitage in beckworth valley california relate their hairbreadth escapes from indians and various hardships endured in their passage across the plains they would dwell 
upon their perilous nights when standing guard their encounters with indians or some daring exploit with a buffalo these recitals were listened to with incredulous ears for there is in human nature such a love of the marvellous that traditionary deeds by dint of repetition become appropriated to the narrator and the tales that we related as actual experience now mislead the speaker and the audience when i recurred to my own adventures i would smile at the comparison of their suffering with what myself and other men of the mountains had really endured in former times the forts that now afford protection to the traveller were built by ourselves at the constant peril of our lives amid indian tribes nearly double their present numbers without wives and children to comfort us on our lonely way without well-furnished wagons to resort to when hungry no roads before us but trails temporarily made our clothing consisting of the skins of the animals who had fallen before our unerring rifles and often whole days on insufficient rations or entirely without food occasionally our whole party on guard the entire night and our strength deserting us through unceasing watching and fatigue these are sufferings that made theirs appear trivial and ours surpass in magnitude my power of relation without doubt many immigrants was subject to considerable hardship during the early part of the emigration by the loss of cattle and the indians came in for their full share of blame but it was through extreme carelessness that so many were lost and those who have charged their losses upon the indians have frequently found their stock or a portion of it harnessed to wagons either far in advance of them or lagging carelessly in the rear the morality of the whites i have not found to exceed very much that of the red men for there are plenty of the former belonging to trains on the routes who would not hesitate to take an axe or two if any chance offered for getting hold of them but to return at the time when i had concluded to proceed with the party we were encamped in the prairie away from any stream having passed the fork of the platte and were again in starving condition except an occasional hare or rabbit there was no sign of supplying ourselves with any kind of game we travelled on till we arrived at pilot butte we travelled on till we arrived at pilot butte where two misfortunes befell us a great portion of our horses were stolen by the crow indians and general ashley was taken sick caused beyond doubt by exposure and insufficient fare our condition was growing worse and worse and as a measure best calculated to procure relief we all resolved to go on a general hunt and bring home something to supply our pressing necessities all who were able therefore started in different directions our customary mode of hunting i travelled as near as i could judge about ten miles from the camp and saw no sign of game i reached a high point of land and on taking a general survey i discovered a river which i had never seen in this region before it was of considerable size flowing four or five miles distant and on its banks i observed acres of land covered with moving masses of buffalo 
I hailed this as a perfect godsend, and was overjoyed with the feeling of security infused by my opportune discovery. However fatigued and weak, I accelerated my return to the camp and communicated my success to my companions. Their faces brightened up at the intelligence, and all were impatient to be at them. The general, on learning my intelligence, desired us to move forward to the river with what horses we had left, and each man to carry a pack on his back of the goods that remained after loading the cattle. He further desired us to roll up snow to provide him with a shelter and to return the next day to see if he survived. The men, in their eagerness to get to the river, which is now called Green River, loaded themselves so heavily that three or four were left with nothing but their rifles to carry. Though my feelings toward the general were still unfriendly, knowing that he had expressed sentiments concerning me that were totally unmerited, I could not reconcile myself to deserting him in his present helpless condition. Accordingly, I informed him that if he thought he could endure the journey, I would make arrangements to enable him to proceed along with the company. He appeared charmed with the magnanimity of the proposal and declared his willingness to endure anything in reason. His consent obtained, I prepared a light litter and, with the assistance of two of the unladen men, placed him upon it in the easiest position possible. Then, attaching two straps to the ends of the litter bars, we threw them over our shoulders, and taking the bars in our hands, hoisted our burden and proceeded with all the ease imaginable. Our rifles were carried by the third man. The anxiety of the general to remain with us prevented his giving utterance to the least complaint, and we all arrived in good season on the banks of the Green River. We were rejoiced to find that our companions, who had preceded us, had killed the fine buffalo, and we abandoned ourselves that evening to a general spirit of rejoicing. Our leader, in a few days, entirely recovered, and we were thus, by my forethought in bringing him with us, spared the labor of a return journey. We all feasted ourselves to our heart's content upon the delicious, coarse-grained flesh of the buffalo, of which there was an unlimited supply. There were, beside, plenty of wild geese and teal ducks on the river. The latter, however, I very seldom venture to kill. One day, several of us were out hunting buffalo. The general, who, by the way, was a very good shot, being among the number. The snow had blown from the level prairie, and the wind had drifted in in deep masses over the margins of the small hills through which the buffalo had made trails just wide enough to admit one at a time these snow trails had become quite deep like all snow trails in the spring of the year thus affording us a fine opportunity for lurking in one trail and shooting a buffalo in another the general had wounded a bull which smarting with pain made a furious plunge at his assailant burying him in the snow with a thrust from his savage-looking head and horns i seeing the danger in which he was placed sent a ball into the beast just behind the shoulder instantly dropping him dead 
the general was rescued from almost certain death having received only a few scratches in the adventure after remaining in the camp four or five days the general resolved upon dividing our party into detachments of four or five men each and sending them upon different routes in order the better to accomplish the object of our perilous journey which was the collecting of all the beaver skins possible while the fur was yet valuable accordingly we constructed several boats of buffalo hides for the purpose of descending the river and proceeded along any of its tributaries that might lie in our way one of our boats being finished and launched the general sprang into it to test its capacity the boat was made fast by a slender string which snapped with the sudden jerk the boat was drawn into the current and drifted away general and all in the direction of the opposite shore it will be necessary before i proceed further to give the reader a description in as concise a manner as possible of this green river suck we were camped as we had discovered during our frequent excursions at the head of a great fall of the green river where it passes through the utah mountains the current at a small distance from our camp became exceedingly rapid and drew towards the center from each shore this place we named the suck the fall continued for six or eight miles making a sheer descent in the entire distance of upwards of two hundred and fifty feet the river was filled with rocks and ledges and frequent sharp curves having high mountains and perpendicular cliffs on either side below our camp the river passed through a canyon or canyon as it is usually written a deep river passed through a bluff or mountain which continued below the fall to a distance of twenty-five or thirty miles wherever there was an eddy or a growth of willows there was sure to be found a beaver lodge the cunning creatures having selected that secluded and as they doubtlessly considered inaccessible spot to conceal themselves from the watchful eye of the trapper to return to the general his frail bark having reached the opposite shore encountered a ledge of rocks and had hardly touched when by the action of the rolling current it was capsized and he was thrown struggling into the water as providence would have it he reached the bluff on the opposite side and holding on to the crevice in the high and perpendicular cliff sung out lustily for assistance not a moment was to be lost someone must attempt to save him for he could not hold his present position in such cold water long i saw that no one cared to risk his life amid such imminent perils so calling to a frenchman of the name of doorway whom i knew to be one of the best swimmers to come to the rescue i threw off my leggings and plunged in supposing he would follow i swam under water as far as i could to avail myself of the undercurrent this mode is always practiced by the indians in crossing a rapid stream i struck the bluff a few feet above the general after taking breath for a moment or two i said to him 
By the way, he was no swimmer. There is only one way I can possibly save you, and I may fail in that. But you must follow my directions in the most minute degree, or we are certainly both lost. Anything you say, James, I will follow, said he. Then, I continue, when I float down to you, place your hands on my shoulder and do not take hold of my neck. Then, when I give you the word, kick out with all your might, and we may possibly get across. I then let myself down to the general, who was clinging to the rocks like a swallow. He did as I directed, and I started, he kicking in my rear like the stern wheel of a propeller until I was obliged to bid him desist. For with such a double propelling power as we produce, I could not keep my mouth out of the water. We swam to within a few yards of the opposite shore, where the main suck caught us, and my strength becoming exhausted, we began slowly to recede from the shore towards inevitable death. At this moment, Fitzpatrick thrust a long pole towards us, to the end of which he attached the rope, which the party on shore retained possession of. I seized the pole with a death grip, and we were hauled out of our perilous situation. A few moments later, and the world had seen the last of us. After this rescue, the general remarked to Fitzpatrick that Beckworth is surely one of the most singular men I've ever met. I do not know what to think of him. He never speaks to me except when absolutely unavoidable. Still, he is the first and only man to encounter peril on my behalf. Three times he has now saved my life when not another man attempted to succor me. He is a problem I cannot possibly solve. Agreeably to previous arrangements, on the following morning, our company proposed to dispense in different directions while preparing to leave our comfortable camp to take our chance in the mountains. I happened to be out among the stock. The general inquired for me, and I was pointed out to him where I stood. He is a singular being, he exclaimed. He knows we are about to separate, and yet he does not trouble himself to come and bid me goodbye. I must go to him. Approaching me, he said, James, we are now about to part. These toilsome enterprises in the mountains are extremely hazardous. Although I hope to see you again, perhaps we may never meet more. I am under great obligations to you. You have several times rescued me from certain death, and by your skill in hunting, you have done great service to my camp. When my mind was irritated and harassed, I was betrayed into the use of language towards you, which I regretted immediately after and still regret. I wish you to forgive me and desire to part in friendship. So long as you continue to use the same precautions you have hitherto used i can securely hope you will escape all accident and look forward to meeting you again under more auspicious circumstances and he concluded by bidding me good-bye i bade him good-bye and we separated previous to this and after his rescue from the suck he mentioned to fitzpatrick that i ought to have the lead of a party and that he believed i was as capable as any one in the company for it Fitzpatrick told him he did not believe I would accept the responsibility. The general bade him 
asked me. He came and communicated to me our general's wish and asked me if I would take the leadership of one of our detached parties. I declined the offer, assigning as my reason that I was too young to undertake the responsibilities of the charge, that this was my first trip to the mountains, I had but little experience in trapping, and that there were older men better qualified for the duty. The leadership of a party of a fur company is a very responsible post, placed similarly to a captain of a whaling vessel, where all depends upon his success. If a captain is fortunate and returns from a profitable voyage, of course, in the eyes of the owner, he is a first-rate officer and stands well for the future. But if he has experienced unusual hardships and returns more or less unsuccessful, he is disgraced in his command and is thrust aside for a more fortunate man. It is just similar with trappers in the mountains. Whatever is their fortune, good or bad, the leader is the person on whom the praise or blame falls. End of chapter 5 Recording by Gary Ullman, West Palm Beach, Florida